Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 16. We begin today the final chapter of the book of Romans, and I'm going to read the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her for whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who, for my life, risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Impiatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stechis, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, Workers in the Lord, greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren, brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nurseus and his sister, Nurus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this is the beginning of the second end of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome. The first and the second ends both contain a benediction. So in the last chapter, 15, verse 33 says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Then, verse 24 of chapter 16, the final chapter, says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. (laughs) Now, why did there have to be two ends? Well, there had to be two ends because the Apostle Paul was a rare man. The Apostle Paul was exceedingly brilliant, but living in a university community, we know that brilliant men are a dime a dozen. Well, the Apostle Paul wasn't just brilliant, but he was wise. So now we're down to something a little more exotic, brilliant and wise, but the Apostle Paul was something exceedingly rare, and that is he was brilliant, he was wise, and he was a lover. And that is almost unheard of. A brilliant, wise, loving man. 
Now, how do we know he, lo- he loved? Well, that's what this chapter is all about. He was about to end the letter, and all of a sudden he stopped and he said, hey, think of all those people I love. And so there, this is essentially a postscript of greetings, you know? This person, this person, this person, this person, this person, and that person, and don't you forget that person, and this person, and that person, and this person. Something that is very sad about your life today is that when you send texts and emails, you never say dear or love. And it's so easy to do. And it is a way that we actually show one another that we all belong to Jesus. We work hard to show our love to each other. And you say, well, I don't need to say love or dear to show my love. Well, neither did the Apostle Paul. Remember, I was talking to a man and, you know, you say, I love you. And he says, no, 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 I love you. Go on, say it to me. Just say it. Mm -hmm. We don't have the same expressions today. Well, that's interesting. I notice. That's why I'm saying, say it. Well, I do. Honestly, would it be so difficult for you to write L-O-V-E in your emails? I mean, you know, some of your comments go to 500 words. Is it so hard to add one that's four letters and good? And what about dear? And of course, we're not even going to get into the way that this text ends. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, that's a different form for a different age and a different time. And furthermore, I'm white and educated. And I don't write dear, and I don't say love, and I certainly don't kiss. Oh, well, knock your socks off. Listen, dead men who are godly and comment on this text say things like this. This this is what a Scotch, this is what a Scot says. He says, um... Oh, am I going to lose this now? I got to read this to you. Yeah, here it is. He says about this kissing. Well, first about all the dear and love and greet and all that other stuff, he says this. For were these writings merely human, in other words, if they weren't the inspired of God, we should not look for instruction from such things. In other words, you're looking in at somebody's end of a letter where they say hi to Sammy and, 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 and Susie and blah, 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 blah. We wouldn't pay attention to them. It shows us that every attention that expresses and pronotes love ought to be exhibited among Christians. Who should employ the forms and courtesies of social life that manifest, that make clear and visible respect in order to show their esteem and affection for one another. I mean, honestly, it's so obvious to me when people won't say dear, won't say love, won't kiss, it's not because they're wise, it's not because they're dignified, it's because they're proud. Come on. 
We are to show we're Christians by our love. And, you know, sometimes we think we're doing it just because we don't fight publicly, you know? Well, that's pretty low hurdle, you know? Can't we begin to speak to one another with terms of endearment? You know? I mean, is that really so difficult? And I'm not even talking about kissing, which I didn't even mention in the first service, but here's what he says about kissing. Again, this, this is a, a, a theologian from Scotland, which is not exactly ground zero of tenderness and affection and, you know, that kind of stuff. He says this, he says, much ridicule has been cast on this practice. This is from a couple hundred years ago. Lots of people have made fun on Christians kissing each other. Much ridicule. But it was enjoined on the churches. Do you know the word enjoined? Commanded. It was commanded to the churches by the apostles, plural. Throughout the, Old Test- the New Testament. It is again and again repeated and practiced by all the primitive churches. Peter calls it, so this is the second apostle, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter calls it a kiss of love. Justin Martyr, in giving an account of the weekly assemblies of the Christians of the second century, says, quote, we mutually salute one another by a kiss. So, okay, I'll move on. The Apostle Paul was brilliant, he was wise, and he oozed affection and love and respect. He was a gentleman, okay? And love is a trademark of his ministry. And affection and love can't be suppressed, they must out. And this chapter is in the text of Scripture because his affection must out, okay? Now he begins with Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, why did he start with Phoebe? We don't know for sure, but we're pretty certain that Phoebe carried this letter to Rome. Probably Phoebe was the reason for this letter. She had business of some sort in Rome. The Romans didn't know her. The Apostle Paul thought, well, I want to commend her to them. And so I'm going to go ahead and write a letter to the Church of Rome. Probably this two verses was pretty significant in the reason for the letter to the Romans. So she's going to Rome. She can carry the letter. He starts with her. And what does he say about her? He says, I commend you, your sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. Centria was a little village, a harbor town next to Corinth. It had two harbor towns adjoining it, centuries. So she's really of the church of, of Corinth, all right? And she's obviously what we used to call a patroness. A patron is, used to be a man, and a patroness was a woman, but like steward and stewardess and waiter and waitress. Everything's gone uh, uh, androgynous, Okay. We're eviscerating language of any sexual content except all the bad sexual content, you know. We're keeping that because it titillates us, all right? I commend you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. 
She might have had legal or financial business in Rome. And he goes on and he says, you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many. And then he says, of myself as well. Very personal, isn't he? In fact, if you look through this whole list, he mentions himself. They, they were Christians before I were. They were helpers to me. They put their lives online for me. So the Apostle Paul is constantly talking about himself. All right? Now, she has preeminence. She has some business in Rome. And it may be court business. It may be financial business. We don't know what it is. And she needs help. And so he says, you help her. She's been a great helper to the churches and to me. All right? He commends her. You know that when you called Pastor Killingsworth, the new pastor, you know that he had all the elders and all the pastors' commendation. Now, it's different because you knew him. They don't know Phoebe, but you understand the meaning of commendation. Trust him, follow him, you know, respect him, honor him. Okay? That's what he's saying about Phoebe. And he says who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. Now, I had no idea that at this point in my life, I was going to be preaching on the nuclear warheads of the battle over feminism in the church. But that's where we are. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that a chapter that just records the incidental life of the church, of the community, all of a sudden is the place where all the nuclear warheads of feminism are. Because if you look at this chapter, well, at this section of the chapter, what you see are what? Well, you see that a little less than half the names that are commended are what? Women. Weird. The women are unbelievably important in this section, aren't they? Isn't that interesting? And so we start with this woman, Phoebe. He says about her, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. Now, we don't have any problem with women being servants, do we? Bring me a beer. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you think, I mean, isn't that sort of the level of life between husbands and wives, where the guy just takes his wife for granted? Beer and burp. And so this says, you know, she's a servant of the church. Well, that's what women should do. Right, Judy? Right? Say, say right. Right. Okay, but stop for a second, would you please, and realize that that word servant in the Greek is diakonon. Do you hear the word diakonon It's the word we get our word deacon from. It's a transliteration. 
So what it actually says, she is a deaconess of the church. If we're going to transliterate the word, we wouldn't transliterate it servant. We'd transliterate it deaconess. Isn't that weird? And so immediately you think to yourself, oh, this, this is some special kind of woman. And yeah, that's what he's trying to tell you. That's why she's first. That's why a whole bunch of words are given to her. She's a deaconess of the church. And you say, well, but the word deacon meant servant. And I say, yeah, like when they appointed all the deacons to take care of serving the widows. You remember that in Acts? They were fighting, and so they, they said, you know, let's, let's choose and set apart men to the office of servant. But for some reason, we translate it deacon. Now, what's the difference between a deacon and a servant? Well, every deacon, properly speaking, if they're not fighting and bitter, (laughs) properly speaking, every deacon is a servant. But properly speaking, every servant is not a deacon. And so what what we're talking about here is a distinction that's very important for you to understand, which is that sometimes in Greek, the word diakonoi or, you know, diakonon here. Sometimes it's used to refer to an office and sometimes it's used to refer to, uh, 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 to servanthood. Let's put it like that. And so obviously the translators in the New American Standard Bible chose to tra- not to transliterate it here, but rather to give the English word uh, servant. But you would never know this is the same Greek word as the word deacon or deaconess, right? You'd never know that. I'm telling you that. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you this because it's very important in a day that hates authority for us to be very observant of the authority that is commanded in Scripture. Because we can't allow authority to be something we argue over and fight to have. What we have to do is say, what does scripture tell us? And then do it, and that gives us relief. Think of how many husbands have had the faith as Christians to lead their wives and children solely because scripture says Adam was created first, and it says the husband is the head of the home. Think of how many elders have at certain times looked at each other, and they know they're walking into a hornet's nest. But they say, well, you know, God's called us to do this. We're to shepherd the flock and the people are supposed to submit to us, so we're going to go ahead and do it, right? Well, the same thing is true of women. The New Testament clearly teaches the authority and the office of deaconess. All right? Did you hear me? It clearly teaches it. And this is one of the places where it's most clear. Phoebe held an office of authority. Now, I will get into making the case to us, but first let me say something. 
You know how every pastor in the country had to say that masks were disobedience to the word of God and effacing the image of God in man and, and, and tyranny and, and on and on and on. You know how all pastors had to just say that masks were demonic. Remember that a couple years ago? No pastor could be in favor of masks. Remember that? Every, every pastor had to be opposed to masks. Remember that? Y'all remember this? Um, Now, why do pastors have to do that? Well, because our government is insane. And that happened to be the thing that all the sheep required pastors to say was wrong. And they didn't want want it to look like they thought the government was sane. Because the government is insane, right? And so they had to, you know, raise the flag. And we all recognize flags, like American flag, you know, mask flags. Yep, yep, I'm against masks, right? And if you didn't do that, the sheep didn't trust you because the sheep knew something real bad doo-doo was going on. And so they wanted you to say you were opposed to masks. Well, listen, the church should be more mature than making such cheap decisions, Truth is never cheap. And truth never conforms to our stupid prejudices. The way you know truth is that it shocks you regularly. Every time you open the Bible, you know it's truth because it shocks you regularly. You know, you go, whoa, I didn't know that was true. Oh, no, that's bad, bad, bad. You know? And so don't make judgments about authority based on prejudices and political positions. Don't do it. The world is not your friend as a Christian. They're sometimes right. And honestly, when those sometimes come along, what do we do? We go, can you believe it? Alito wrote that. I mean, it's mind-boggling if you actually read it. You know, the Supreme Court opinion. It's rare. Truth is forevermore killed, and lies are forevermore on the throne. Don't be cheap with your judgments. Don't try to have friends who are safe because they always agree with you. If your friends always agree with you, it's because they lie and you lie. And this is as true of Christians as it is of pagans. We are liars. It's deep in our DNA. Now, why am I going off on this about mass? Well, I want to bring us back to authority. If we are insecure about the nature of authority and we don't follow what scripture tells us, then we are out in vanity fair and we're just subject to every single pressure that comes at us. And we can never have a position because we can never allow the Bible to tell us what to do because we're too busy raising this flag and that flag and the other flag and we got the flags going up and down and up and down and... You know, oh, come on. No. With authority, we need to go back to Scripture. And if I tell you that Scripture teaches the office of deaconess, 
Don't just say, well, you know, he's retiring and he's waiting until the very end to become a liberal. It's stupid. It's stupid. No, I haven't all of a sudden sold out to feminism. (laughs) Come on, laugh. It's funny. You know? Nobody's laughing. All right. Now, it's important before I go back and prove the point about deaconess that you understand something. Women, particularly older women, have always had authority over younger women and children. Always. It is natural for women to have authority over girls. It's natural for older women to have authority over younger women. Now you say, well, how can you say it's natural? I say, well, because all the books and movies you love show it. (laughs) Why do you think you like Jane Austen? Why do you think you like Downton Abbey? They restore all the aspects of the order of creation that God has ordained and that man has destroyed. It's not the castles and the, the furniture and, you know, the, it's the order. It's a fix. It's like a heroin dopamine-like thing for you to escape into this world where once again there's sanity. What is the sanity? The sanity is order. The sanity is authority. And do the women of that house have no authority? Oh my goodness, you feel sorry for the men. I mean, honestly. What about Jane Austen? I mean, I could go on and on and on. God has ordained that older women have authority over younger women. It's natural. But we live in a totalitarian state. And that's the second thing you have to understand. With masks, the reason everybody was upset about masks is they represent the totalitarianism of government in the Western world. I'm not saying I'm against masks. We wore them. That's not my point. My point is the overreach of authority by the civil authority is mind-boggling today. We all know this. It should not be arguable. If I had a, a congregation of Democrats here, they should all agree with me. And then they would tell me it's because of the stupid conservatives that the government has to have that much authority because stupid conservatives are doing everything wrong. And and, and I've had that said to me. I understand it. But nobody can argue that the government today is doing things that would be incomprehensible to people 20 years ago, let alone 50. Reaching into every single place while saying, look at the birdie, look at the birdie. And all the stupid sheep are looking at the birdie, and the birdie is the right to privacy. When, of course, you have no right to privacy. Remember, C.S. Lewis saying, they'll tell you you can have your religion in private, and then they'll make sure you're never alone. 
And that's what's going on in America today. And we had a good example this last week where you had a Muslim football player, soccer player over in Italy or France, and the guy declined to put on a jersey with a rainbow. And so he couldn't play in the game. He's a Muslim. It's an abomination. No, he won't raise the LGBTQ flag, all right? Should a Muslim be able to do that in Western democracies? If you read the news, what happened? Everybody was absolutely went stark raving mad against him. And what they said, and watch this, they said, this man is a criminal. The word used was criminal against society. He has committed a crime against society. Now, this is no news to us. Why does the monopoly of Amazon tell me that they won't carry my book, The Grace of Shame, anymore? It's because we live in a totalitarian state. So should I go all bonkers about the grace of shame being censored by the West? Well, (laughs) it's boring. I'm just happy it didn't happen sooner. I mean, it was no shock to me, you know? No shock to me. So you say, well, okay, so, so what are we supposed to do? Well, I'm getting to that. In the West, we have totalitarianism. You are not allowed to think biblically. You're not allowed to speak biblically. You're not allowed to write biblically. You are not allowed to preach biblically. And the pulpits are filled with self-censorship on the part of pastors. All right, this is the truth. Totalitarian states never allow there to be any authority except the authority that they hold themselves. That's the essence of totalitarianism. Our government is intent upon destroying any authority except its own. Now, this is not anything new. You've been hearing this for a long time. What did, and you know what they called him, Papa Joe Stalin, Papa, what did Papa Joe Stalin do with communism? Well, what he did was he destroyed the church, number one. What is the church known as in the Western world? It's known as what is called a, quote, mediating institution. What is it mediating? It's mediating authority. The church used to be looked at as an institution which assisted the authority of the state so that many things could be kept on a local level. You should not be going to court about a man hitting his wife. It should never reach the courts. Why? (laughs) Because the deacon should go to his house and beat the snot out of him. And you say, oh, Pastor Bailey, oh, how could you? And I say, would it work? And you say, well, that's not the point. That's like, what do they call it? Uh, uh, Vigilante, yeah, yeah, vigilante. Well, I got the idea from an African-American church in the South. I read about it in about 1983, about a woman that went off to the city and got married, brought her husband home. She showed up at church without her husband with bruises on her face one day, and the deacons went over to his house, and they said to him, if you ever lay hands on that woman again, we're going to come back and we're going to beat the snot out of you. And I thought to myself, right on. 
that's church discipline I can believe in. (laughs) The church was a mediating institution. Do you understand this? And it was benevolent. Shouldn't the fathers of the church protect the daughters of the church? But instead, we got Julie Roy's doing it. Pathetic. And of course, with Julie Roy's, the subtext is all always destroy male authority. She'd never admit it, but it's what it is. I've been saying that for a couple years now. Stalin destroyed the church, and that authority slid to Moscow. Then he destroyed the authority in the home. He destroyed husbands and fathers. He's Papa. How did he do that? Well, he couldn't quite keep men and women from when a man loves a woman. You know, he realized that was a hill too high. So he had to let them love each other and marry. But then he sent the woman out of the home. She could not be a wife. She couldn't be a mother. She couldn't care for her children. And so, yeah, he had a wife, but she wasn't a wife and she wasn't a mother. She was a worker in the machine. Are you with me? Is everybody with me? You with me? Come on. And then he took the children and sent them off to nursery, to daycare, and to education. Government education. Joseph Stalin, Papa Joseph Stalin, removed the authority of the church and the home. He destroyed it. Okay, you with me? Now, let's come back to the church. What is the solution to living in a totalitarian regime? Whether that totalitarianism is cloying like the West (laughs) or bald-faced like communism, the solution is to return to Scripture. And for us to believe in the authority of husbands and fathers, to believe in the authority of elders, to believe in the authority of mothers and fathers over children, to believe in the authority of older women over younger women and children. We do not look at the abuse of a good thing and conclude that the legitimate valid use of that good thing is wrong. And that's what we're all tempted to do. We're all tempted to be insecure and to just say, you better not allow masks in your church. But honestly, if the sheep tell you what you can and can't do, what's the point of having pastors and elders? What's the point of having Adam Spadey if you don't use him about masks? Brian Bailey, (laughs) you know, are you all with me? And so, no, we didn't just go along with all the people screaming when it came to COVID, all right? And should we go along with all the people screaming when it comes to deaconess? Now, you say, well, who's screaming? Well, the same destroyers of authority in the church who are muddying every single thing that comes along. They're, they're just, their interest is muddying. They try to cloud everything up so nothing's clear. <clears throat> now, the main representative of this in my part of the church is Tim Keller. Tim Keller in Manhattan says, okay, listen, women have been oppressed, women have not been treated with respect, and we're going to differentiate ourselves by showing our respect for women. Now, 
So far, so good, right? I mean, women are disrespected today, right? <coughs> Excuse me. But then the problem was that the way he solved this thing was to come up with a method of putting women in leadership over men. Okay? And what he did was he began calling all of his male deacons deeks, D-E-E-K-S. Okay? And then he began to put a ton of women with the men and calling them deeks too. He stopped ordaining the men. He had a melange, a hodgepodge, uh, 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 well, there are unnice words, but I won't use them. Uh, you know, a, a mess. He messed it all up, so it was confusing, right? And most importantly, it was androgynous. But listen, I believe in women deacons. So he's on my side because he has women deacons. They're called deacons, and they're not ordained. The men aren't ordained. Then he appointed the head deacon. He employed her. And it was a woman. So it wasn't just that the women exercised authority over men, indiscriminate of the sexuality. It's also that the head deacon was a woman. Now, let me ask you, is that a return to scripture? No, it's not. Why? I mean, come on, this isn't rocket science. It's not because the apostle Paul says this. He says, a woman... 1 Timothy 2, a woman must quietly, that's one clue, quietly, receive instruction with, this is the second clue, entire submissiveness. <laughs> Men, haven't you ever wished you could channel that in your marriage? <laughs> you know, quiet, entire submission, <laughs> you know? Well, the Apostle Paul has it here in Scripture, And he says this, I don't allow one to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. So we've got quietly and then quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Again, it's not rocket science. So what we have is scripture showing us that there are women deacons called deaconesses and that they hold an office of authority but the authority is not over men. Now, honestly, is that so difficult to understand? It's not. It's simple, isn't it? It's so simple. I remember in my presbytery, there was a church that had been found out of conformity with the BCO and scripture because they did the the Keller thing. And... um, One of the elders of the church was a man that uh, I had gotten close to his family when I was at my former church. And they were fighting and fighting and fighting with the presbytery. And this man who was an elder was a man of good conscience. Do you know what I mean by good conscience? Um, He was a good man. But he kept getting snookered. You know, he kept getting caught up in rebellion. So finally one day, after the <coughs> presbytery meeting, I went up to him and I said, hey, I said, can I talk to you for a second? 
I said, you know, we can resolve. This had been going on presbytery meeting after presbytery meeting, committees, papers, on and on and on and on. And I said to him, you know, there's a very simple change you could make to your practice which would make everybody happy, and it would end. And of course, he's excited. What would it be? And I said, just call your women deacons deaconess. Number two, make it very clear to the church that they will not exercise authority over men. Just make that clear. And number three, have them under the male deacons. <laughs> now think about that. Isn't that reasonable? Well, you know why you think it's reasonable? It's because what scripture does. And anything you do that's in conformity with God's order of creation before the fall is reasonable because God is reasonable. (laughs) At least I think so. He said, oh, yeah. I mean, he was so excited we could finally be done with all the fighting, you know. That was it. Never heard from him again. (laughs) Because, of course, the poor guy went back to his session meeting and got his head cut off. Because the whole point was rebellion. It wasn't submission. Now, you all understand exactly what's going down here, right? And so what happens is, in a totalitarian regime, we all get caught up in the battle over authority. We see that the government is taking more and more authority. We see everything going wrong. We see that every single court case has a woman judge, a woman lawyer for the defense, a woman prosecutor, and the ad litem is a woman. We see that all our professional schools are filling up with women. And so we say, not in the church. You know? Typical overreaction. When the church is the place where women have always had dignity. They've always been leaders. They've had authority. And if I were to say to you, who should discipline women? Men or women? You would say, well, (laughs) if you can, women. And I say, yeah, oh my goodness. (laughs) I've tried sometimes, it just doesn't go very well, (laughs) you know. And then I say to you, who should discipline men? Men or women? Even the most rabid feminist is going to say, men. I say, yeah. And so here we have an office. And this office is what has always been practiced. Now, you know I didn't choose this text for today. It happened. Don't read into this text anything going on in our church right now. It has nothing to do with it. All right? This is truth. And so you say, well, you say it's an office, but maybe it's just a function. And I say, well, 
Um, do you remember that it was women that supported Jesus out of their purse strings? And do you know that when it says contributions, that's the same Greek root? It's diakonon? It's, it's not diakonon, but it's the same service. The contribution is the same Greek root. The women that supported Jesus. So we know that it can refer simply to servanthood. It wasn't an office to go around with Jesus and support him and the 12 disciples. So Luke records that and uses the same word. So we know there's an exa- there are examples of the, the, the cognate of deacon in Greek being used to refer to a non-office. We also know it's used to refer to an office because in Titus, t- no, excuse me, because in the beginning of Acts, you see that there are men that are appointed to that office, and it's the same word, the same root, the same cognate of deacon. Now, let me ask another question. In Scripture, is there any indication of women holding an office other than here? All right. And this is 1 Timothy. I'm sorry, this is not 1 Timothy. This is second. Yes, it's 1 Timothy 5, verse 9. A widow is to be put on what? The list. That's formal. There's a list. Her name is to be put on it. She is to be enrolled on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and she has devoted herself to every good work. So she gets to be 60. Why 60? Well, because she took a vow to this office and singleness. And therefore, she was not allowed to remarry. She took a vow. This is essentially what's behind convents, okay? Nuns. If she was younger than 60, the chances were too high that she would break her vow by getting married again. So they wanted somebody that had lived long enough with a man that she didn't have any stars in her eyes and wouldn't do it again. Oh, my. I mean, that's essentially what the commentators historically say. (laughs) They don't put it quite like that, but anyhow. So there are women who are on a list. They have certain characters. They have um, qualifications just like elders and deacons do. And it's a list. So we know there was an office in the New Testament church. It's right there. Okay? We also know that they didn't just have responsibility for things like um, baptizing women, but they also had a spiritual authority because we read in Titus 2, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women, the young women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, you put that curriculum together that the older women are to teach younger women. Can you imagine a more authoritative eldership over women than what the older women are taught 
are told to do with the younger women. In other words, what I'm saying is, in Titus 2, what it's telling older women to do with younger women is the most intense and authoritative leadership you could have of younger women in the church. It's not like teach them how to take their fingernail polish off. It is natural for older women to have authority over younger women. That's why you like Jane Austen. That's why you like a lot of the things that you read that are historical. Second, older women being delegated and exercising authority over the women of children of the church is indicated by such texts as I have just gotten done reading. Third, Older women being delegated and exercising authority over the women and children of the church is indicated by the earliest church fathers, such as Origen and Chrysostom. It's very clear from church history that this is what the earliest church did. Now then, Women being formally recognized as officers in teaching and leading the younger women and children of the church is natural, it's biblical, and it's historical. And historically, these women did not simply teach and encourage younger women, but they also baptized, catechized the women converts, served the sick and poor, and whatever else was needed. Phoebe was such a woman. And thus the Apostle Paul's commendation of her, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the church. Now about this point, you're thinking, well, Tim's, you know, Tim's like, he's going soft. You know. Phoebe was not just a deaconess of the New Testament church. Phoebe was, are you ready? Quote, an officer unquote, of the church. Quote, officer, unquote, of the church. So says Matthew Henry. Quote, he refers to Phoebe as, quote, a servant by office. A stated servant, unquote. How about Robert Haldane, this this guy from Scotland who's a theologian from 150, 200 years ago that I've been quoting you all the time through the book of Romans. Haldane says, quote, as deacons were appointed to attend to the poor, so deaconesses were specially set apart in the churches in order to attend to the wants of their own sex. That's Haldane, unquote. Now, how about Charles Hodge? Any of you know Charles Hodge, great theologian, 1800s, Princeton? He says this, Phoebe was a servant, diaconos, a deaconess. It appears that in the apostolic church, elderly females were selected to attend upon the poor and sick of their own sex. Many ecclesiastical writers, many church writers, suppose there were two classes of these female officers, the one presbytides, elderess, the word from which we get Presbyterian indicating rule by elders, 
the one office, the one category is presbytides, and so that's elderus, corresponding in some measure in their duties to the elders, having the oversight of the conduct of the younger female Christians, and the other whose duty was to attend to the sick and poor. In other words, he makes a distinction, and he says the early church does, between those women who primarily taught the younger women, admonished them, rebuked them, corrected them, and said, be keepers at home, be pure, be this, be that, be the other thing. The intense leadership. And then he says the other one is those who serve the poor, serve the needy, washed the feet of the saints, showed hospitality and everything. In other words, he's saying that the early church reflects there being a bifurcation of the duties of two kinds of leading women, just as there was with men, deacons and elders. But maybe Matthew Henry and Robert Haldane and Charles Hodge aren't enough for you. And so can I read you what John Calvin says? The Apostle Paul commends Phoebe on account of, quote, her office, unquote. For she performed a most honorable and a, quote, most holy function, unquote, in the church. She was a minister of the Centrian church. He bids that on account she should be received in the Lord. But this service, quote unquote, of which he speaks as to what it was, he teaches us in another place. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, the list. For as the poor were supported from the public treasury of the church, so they were taken care of by those in public offices. Public offices. First Timothy, public offices. Romans 16, Phoebe. And for this charge, widows were chosen. For the charge of public offices, widows were chosen. This is Calvin. Who being free from domestic concerns, encumbered by no children. Any women here cumbered by children? (laughs) Okay. Cumbered by no children, wished to consecrate themselves wholly to God by religious duties. They were, quote, therefore received into this office, unquote. He refers to this office as a most sacred function and very useful to the church. Listen. Greet. Listen. We can't allow the people that muddy everything up and trim God's truth to determine what we do in the church. We just can't do it. The fact is, this church is a function of the older women of this church. And I'm not saying anything I haven't said since the inception of this church. This church was started by Rita Cuffey. You'll hear otherwise in a couple of weeks, but I'm telling you the truth. And who is it that I have consistently paid my honor and respect to every single year I have been in this church but Rita Cuffey? So that those of you who never knew her know her. And when I talk about the influence of my parents, who do I talk about? I talk about my mother. And who do I still get mad at occasionally? My mother. (laughs) You know? And that's an indication that she really took me in hand. Some things that uh, every mother does. 
What was Deborah in the Old Testament? Deborah was a mother in Israel, quote, unquote. What is a mother? Did you notice that approximately a little less than half of the names listed here are women? And who are the other women? He says, greet Prisca and Aquila. Whose name is first, the husband or wife? Prisca. Do you know that the commentators actually make mention of that, showing that she had precedence? She's the one that took the lead in confronting Apollos with his errors, and he was a powerful preacher of Scripture. Calvin, on the text here where it says, greet Prisca and Aquila, well, let me go on and read it. My fellow workers, fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. So these tent makers that he worked with, she risked her life for the Apostle Paul. And she is a co-worker to the Apostle Paul. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of Gentiles. Why? Because He was the apostle of the Gentiles, and every church wanted the apostle Paul to be living. They saw her risk her life to keep him alive. And then he says, also greet the church that is in their house. And so this woman confronted Apollos. This woman risked her life for the apostle Paul. All the churches loved this woman and her husband, but her name is listed first. And you know what Calvin says about that in this same text? He says, it is a singular honor which he ascribes here to Prisca and Aquila. By the way, Priscilla is the diminutive, the affectionate term for Prisca. So it's the same when you read it. And sometimes Priscilla comes second. But here he comes first. And he says, it's a singular honor which he ascribes here to Prisca and Aquila, especially with regard to a woman. The modesty of the holy man does on this account more clearly shine forth. For he disdained not to have a woman as his associate in the work of the Lord, nor was he ashamed to confess this. (laughs) So we've got Prisca. We've got Phoebe. But you realize that's not the end here. Do you know that the single most explosive nuclear warhead in the feminist movement in the last 50 years is in our text, and I haven't touched it yet? And here it is. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now, most of you don't know this, but Junius could be male or female. And it's been argued about for centuries. This is not a modern argument. We're not quite clear about Junius. Then he says about her, she was outstanding among the apostles. Now, will you know when that's said that there's two ways you can interpret it, right? On the one hand, you can say that the apostles all had deep respect for her. On the other hand, you can say that she was one of the chief apostles. 
Do you see that? You see how easy it is to see that either way. But let's say that Junius was a woman, all right? Does it hurt for a woman to be a co-worker with the Apostle Paul? I mean, honestly, is that what we've been reduced to? Are we so insecure that we have to pat our wives on the head and say, they're there, little lady. This church is a function of the authority of the women of this church. I have said that from the very beginning. I have said again and again and again that Mrs. Adam Spadey had an incredible impact on me at my former church and gave me strength to keep going. You've heard me say this, right? You've heard me, right? Oh, come on. I'll kiss you if you don't raise your hand. (laughs) And I haven't talked about Joyce, and I grieve her absence, but you've heard me say this over and over again about Joyce. You've heard me say it about Ann Wagner. Do I have to keep going? The women of this church are the ones who have not allowed the men of this church to be the wusses we would have been. I remember we had Linda, bless her soul, she got up and gave a testimony back on Winslow Road. And it was during a capital campaign. She did a bang-up job. Oh, did I catch it afterwards. Oh, my goodness. And who from? Our women. What was she doing up there preaching at us? And I'm like, (laughs) the elders did it, you know. (laughs) Stupid elders. Listen, any man here who is honest will tell you that his wife, if she's a godly woman, There are women who tear down their own houses with their hands. But if a man has a godly woman, any man here is going to tell you that he can't count the number of times that his wife has forced him to make the right decision, has forced him to confront his sins, has motivated him to repent. Oh, if you had seen my wife this last week, you, I'm sorry. It's personal. If you had seen what my wife did to me this last week, oh my goodness. And she did it tenderly. And I was left gobsmacked. And I knew the direction I had to go, and it was incredibly painful. Is this not what life is? Has God not given us as men an incredible dependence upon women? How on earth have we gotten to the point where we think the first line of defense in the church is for the elders to admonish a woman? You know, it's, you know, I mean, you know. No, no, no. We need to see that motherhood is powerful. And it's very interesting that at the very end, the Apostle Paul says, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. And then he says this also, you know that, his mother and mine. 
Men, are any of you going to deny the impact of your mother on you? <laughs> no, we're not. The men that deny have either had a bad mother or they're wimps, they're wusses, they're cowards, they're liars. And so in the church, can we please not be ashamed of honoring our women? It doesn't make us feminists. Give them room to work. Now remember, I told you this has nothing to do with what is going on at this church right now. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And if you've known this church for a long time, you know from the very beginning I've been in favor of deaconesses. I wrote it up in R.C. Sproul's Table Talk magazine back in, what, about 1998. I wrote it. Now, one final thing. Why don't we have deaconesses? <laughs> you know, that's a good question to ask. Well, if this is what you think Scripture teaches, why don't we have deaconesses? And here's the reason. The reason is that all the hipster church planners have muddied the water so much that it's very hard to know which way to turn. Because the sheep are easily um, scared. And it would be very easy for people from outside to look at us going to deaconesses and to assume that we have gone over to the dark side. People here generally would not think that, right? But people outside looking at us would say, oh, well, see, they agree. And you know we don't agree with anything the hipsters do. But they don't know that, and so we have to be very circumspect in how we walk today about sexuality. But if I ask you, do women in this church function according to what? The Apostle Paul says to what Matthew Henry says, to what Robert Haldane says, to what Charles Hodge says, to what John Calvin says. Are you with me? We do it. It is essential to the life of this church for us to have women who function as deacons and as elderesses. And if you listen to me talking to my wife, you'll hear me sometimes say to her, oh, lover, please, can't the elders have a little bit of help from you women? It's a woman. Could you help, please? We're at such a disadvantage dealing with women. I'm whooped, utterly whooped by women. Trying to work with women without women working with women, it is the most discouraging work a pastor has. We, I don't know if you agree with that, but I agree with it. <laughs> you know. And so uh, pray about this. Authority has to be restored to its biblical description. We have to not be bothered by the world. We have to live in a, in a wise way. But the solution to the utter rebellion that's pervasive, where all authority has gone to the government, there's none left to the church. There's none left in the home. That's why we have red pill. We have to be different. 
We have to live biblically. We have to walk by faith. We can't run around trying to show that we're pretty much like the world, but a little different. I mean, seriously? Pretty much, but a little different? No, 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 no. That's such weakness. Women, give your femininity to God. I'll stop with this, I promise. You know the first book about fatherhood was called Daddy Tried? I want to write one now for motherhood. I probably never will, but you know what it'll be titled if I write it? It'll be titled Mama Cried. Because what I've noticed is that women are very uncomfortable with the degree to which their femininity has absolute authority over men and precisely at the point of their crying. Women hate to cry because it's weakness. Why do they hate weakness? Well, because it's feminine. Why do they hate femininity? Well, because it's weakness. And so they hate crying. They hate it. And yet men tell them the truth. Is there any point at which they have more authority over us than when they cry. You have a woman cry with a man, <laughs> and he done churned into jello. Because women, you have our hearts. Every one of you. Now, you do your work and stop trying to prove you're not feminine. Stop trying to be butch, honestly. Be a woman, because the church desperately needs women today, desperately needs it. Don't let the feminists be the ones that speak for God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the women of this church, and we pray, Lord, that you will give them faith that they will be both feminine and that they will exercise authority over one another in such a way as to make the work of the pastors of Jody and the men he works with, and of Tim Wegner and the elders, to make their work easier, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful gift of Priscilla, of Junius, of Phoebe. We thank you, Father, for the honoring of the Apostle Paul of these women. We pray that this will be a church that honors women in the same way, with the same intensity, in Jesus' name.